Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 118. Now, you know, it's Palm Sunday, and we've been studying the Psalms, so naturally, to my brain, we're going to go to Psalm 118, because Psalm 118 is quoted so often in the New Testament and other parts of the Old Testament relative to salvation, relative to the things that we see of the, the, uh, the restoration of uh, Jerusalem, the restoration of the temple, and in, obviously in every gospel, portions of Psalm 118 is quoted relative to the entering of Jesus into Jerusalem. So if you're able, would you stand? I'm actually, I'm not going to read the entire psalm. I'm going to read um, some selections, and I'm actually going to begin in Psalm 117 as well. So let's pray. Lord, as we come today, we pray that as we read your word, your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears, that we would hear the things of Christ, that we would see his work, we would understand how you call us then to live. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 117 is actually an, an introduction to some of the themes that are developed fully in Psalm 118. So Psalm 117, praise the Lord all nations, loud him all peoples. For his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. And then the first four verses of 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. O let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. O let the house of Aaron say, his loving kindness is everlasting. O let those who fear the Lord say, what? His loving kindness is everlasting. Okay, I think we get the theme there uh, that is developed. And then, of course, 22 through 26 of Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. And, and I bet you can guess what theme from 117 is developed in the first couple verses of 118. It is loving kindness. Again and again we see that we are to give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. Now we see this developed in the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 33 of Jeremiah um, where it's just before the destruction of Jerusalem and he is given a promise and a prophecy from the Lord that it will be restored. And he says, The voice of the Lord who, of those who say, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And then in the uh, prophet, the, the Meyer prophet of Ezra, uh, just when they were laying the foundations of the temple again, they say, They sang praises and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his Loving kindness is forever upon Israel. 
So it's this common theme of this loving kindness. Now, there are three uh, particular um, things, okay, uh, for lack of a better term, that we're going to pull out of these verses that I want us to understand today. Uh, One, of course, is the loving kindness of our Heavenly Father. Secondly, is why the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem happened on this particular day. And then third, why the experts were all wrong. Okay, why the experts were so wrong. So uh, let's look at the first section about the loving kindness of our Heavenly Father. And there are two items under the loving kindness of our Heavenly Father. Um, If you really want to be complex, you can open your hymnal to Psalm 404 or to hymn 404, or you can let me read it to you a little bit. The loving kindness of our Heavenly Father. This is a particular Hebrew word that is not easily translated. Okay? Uh, Hesed. It's just one word. But so often in Hebrew, one word requires a complete sentence to make it understandable in English. Okay? Greek, the language, Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament, was much easier uh, to, to translate. Hebrew is much more conceptual uh, and, and, and uh, gives images. So when we come to this word hesed, um, generally we have translated, we, like I'm a translation expert, uh, I, I passed Hebrew, that, I, I was pleased with it, okay? Um, we, we translate loving kindness. It's not mercy, it's not loyalty, it's not... Um, It's not simply mercy, it's not simply loyalty, it's not simply covenant love. It is far beyond any of those words. So we just translate it loving kindness. This is hymn 404, the love that will not let us go. Perhaps that may be the best way to translate it. And Just let me read a little bit, I won't sing it. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not in vain that morn shall tearless be. And O cross that lifteth up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. Okay, this is it's a great hymn, a great hymn and it is really centers on a type of love that grasps us and will not let us go. Now, what does that mean? That means as stupid as we can be, as sometimes faithless as we can be, as sometimes as wandering as we can be, God has a love for those who are his that he will not let us go. And we see this in the people of Israel. I mean, how many times is it repeated? The Lord says what? All you have to do is... Be faithful to me. All you have to do is do what I say, and I will bring blessing upon you, and I will protect you, and I will keep you safe. And even though you're a small nation and you're surrounded by enemies, 
you will be victorious because of my covenant love, my hesed, my loving kindness that is given only to my people. And the psalmist, psalmist here in 118 is really celebrating the fact that God remains steadfast. He remains immovable. Notice it doesn't say that Randy remains steadfast in his faithfulness, that Randy is immovable in his faithfulness towards God, because I'm not. Because there's still sin within me. Yes, the Lord has come, changed my life, but sin still remains here, and I tend to what? I tend to wander around here and there. I have weaknesses, just like everybody else. But the Lord does not. The Lord does not have weaknesses. He does not take his gaze from us. He does not take his attention from us. Oran, there are six billion people in the world. Yes, he knows everyone. He knows every heart. He knows the hair on every head of every six billion people. All the time. He knows where we are all the time. He knows what we're thinking all the time. If he didn't, would you want a God that couldn't? Just think about it. When you think of the Lord, when you think of a God, do you want a God who's just like us? Or do you want one that knows everything about everybody? Well, think of the unfaithfulness of characters out of uh, the Old Testament. Abraham, you know, God's chosen God, that's the, the blessing comes upon Abraham. He is pulled out of just, just a place and the Lord calls him and says, I'm going to build a nation off of you. And, in, and, and every once in a while, Abraham just, just goes brain dead, you know. Um, who's this good-looking woman with you? Oh, it's my sister. Yeah. Lord says, I'm going to protect you, Abraham. And so he says, but I'm concerned about my own safety, Sarah. You're on your own. Uh, and then he does it again later. And you know what his son does later? His son does the same thing with his wife. Like father, like son. Moses, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, you know, he, he was so good, so often, I mean, he really didn't want to be, he wanted the Lord to do the work. Remember, he cries out, Lord, when are you going to release your people? And he says, I'm going to send you. So careful what you pray about, because sometimes the Lord says, well, I'm going to send you to take care of what you're praying about. That's what he does to Moses. And Moses does so well leading the people. Yeah, he gets fed up with them. But finally, he just can't take it anymore. He takes his, his staff and he wallops the rock instead of speaking to the rock because the Lord said, speak to the rock. So he didn't get to see the promised land. We see this demonstrated in the book of Hosea. As Hosea is told to go and find Gomer and go marry Gomer. And she is his wife of uh, uh, unfaithfulness. And, and she is repeatedly unfaithful, but yet Hosea is faithful, and he, he eventually goes and redeems her out of her sinfulness. This is a great image of what the Lord does to his people. He is steadfast. This is the type of love that we see here. It is hesed. It is loving kindness. This is the love of God for his people that endures forever. It is not based upon the object of his love. His love is not based upon us. His love is based upon his character, his word, his promises, and his perfect will. So the first thing about Hesed is this is a love that will not let us go. The second thing about this particular type of love is that this psalm, Psalm 118, is probably the last song that Jesus ever sang on this earth. Now, you'll notice that Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 17, and 18 form a group of psalms called the Egyptian Hallel. 
And they were psalms that were sung in particular uh, during festive times and around the Passover in particular. Okay. Now, uh, remember at the, uh, the Last Supper, uh, it says uh, what? And, and then they, they shared a supper, and then they sang a hymn, and then they went out on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. You know what they sang? They sang either 118, or they sang 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, and 118. These were the songs. They were pilgrimage songs. They were songs that were sung on the way somewhere. Okay, the Hallel songs. Um, so the gospel accounts, uh, and I, as I said, the gospel, each, all four gospels quote Psalm 118 um, relative to the coming of Christ, the entering of Jerusalem. Uh, it talks about the cornerstone, and we'll see, see more of that later. But look at verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. O Lord, do save. Okay, do save. That's the Hebrew phrase, and we translate it as Hosanna. So when they waved the palm branches, they were saying Hosanna, Hosanna. They were saying, do save. So Jesus entered Jerusalem, and the crowds, whether they, they didn't fully grasp it, but they thought he was the Messiah. Well, of course he was. He just didn't quite fit all of their categories, as we'll see. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. Lord, do beseech thee. Send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Those are familiar. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Very familiar phrases that we say we're seeing every year on this Sunday. But later in the week, as he debated with the Jewish leaders, Jesus refers himself, refers to himself as the stone the builders rejected and we'll see this in Matthew 21 in just a few moments. Peter also used this psalm when he was preaching in Acts chapter 4. He testified that God had raised Jesus from the dead and then he looks at the his audience and in his audience are the are the Pharisees and he says Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you and he points to him and says you the builders which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, no name under heaven by which you must be saved. Peter also refers to this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He goes on to speak about God's mercy. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you would think, well, he just called you out of darkness into light. No, it's not just light. It is marvelous light. It is this place of salvation that he calls us to and what psalm 118 is about is really proclaiming the excellencies of god's salvation jesus came in the name of the lord and he came to save he didn't come so that he could proclaim things and then get on the cross and save himself remember as he was mocked on the cross they said well if you're the king get off the cross and save yourself he's on the cross to save us he didn't get up there just so he could get down and save his own life. He got up there so that he could give his life as atonement for sin. Remember that, as atonement for sin. The only way that we could partake in this loving kindness of the Father is through the one who was without sin, Jesus the Christ. So that's the first kind of theme I want to look at. The second theme that I want to look at is why 
Jesus came on this way on this day. So in Psalm 118, look at verse 25 and 26 again. O Lord, do save. Hosanna, we beseech thee. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what Palm Sunday is about. This is the Hallel, okay? Jesus came to give his life as atonement for sin. And Jesus entered Jerusalem on a particular day. Go to Exodus chapter 12. The Lord was very particular as he gave instructions to his covenant people. And he gave instructions that were sometimes very detailed. And in fact, in chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, we find approximately 16 instructions as to how they are to celebrate and to be involved in the Passover. 16 different things which the Lord said, this is the way that you do it, and there's no other way to do it. Yeah, but I really enjoy this. No, this is the way that you are to do it. Why? Because the Lord is going to visit you, and he wants things ready and to be done in this fashion and this fashion alone. Now, as we deal with Jesus entering Jerusalem, look at chapter 12, verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now this is in preparation for the Passover. So specific instructions are given for specific reasons. Now, it says the 10th of this month. Now, um, this is, uh, I, I want to make it simple. So I just kind of, I, I don't want to say dumbed it down. I made it simple, okay? In Hebrew calendar, in, in the old days, it was divided up basically into three, three sections of 10, okay? So you had the entering of the month, and you had the center of the month, and you had the departing of the month, and each was 10 days. So it says... What speak to all the congregation on the 10th of this month. So there's a particular day on that month that they're supposed to go out and get a lamb. And they would go out and get this lamb, and this lamb would be the sacrifice for that household for the, for the Passover. And they would take the lamb, and they would bring it into their household. Um, look at verse 6 now. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. You say, whoa. Now let me think, Rand. If I connect the dots here, you're saying the Jewish household is supposed to go out and get a lamb and take it into their house and for four days thereabouts to keep it into their, in their house and then on that final day, a particular day of the month, probably the full moon of that month, giving that it was the 14th day, the middle of the month, they were then to take it at twilight, twilight is sometime between 3 p.m. and dark, and sacrifice it for the atonement of their sin and that the Lord may protect them. Have any familiar ring to it as far as Jesus Christ? He enters Jerusalem on what day? Oh, it's the 10th of the month. Okay, and in a sense, he is taken into their household, into the city of Jerusalem, and, and, and there he lives in their hearts for these days. And then on the appropriate day, when the lambs are being sacrificed for the sins of the people, 
at twilight what is happening on Calvary. The Lamb of God is being sacrificed for our sins. Did it have to be this day? Yes, it did. Why? Because before the foundations of the earth, our Heavenly Father had worked all this out and had planned it all out. So in a very real sense, Jesus enters their house, he is kept with them, and then he is the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Our third section, let's look back at Psalm 118 once again. Well, let's go to Matthew 21. I said we'd go there, we'd better go. In a very real sense, Jesus' entry on what we call Palm Sunday, on the 10th of the month here, shows why the experts were wrong. Shows why the experts were wrong. Now we have to ask the question, well, didn't the people understand that Jesus was the Son of God? I mean, he had, he had said these things. He had said, I go to Jerusalem to give my life as atonement for sin. Didn't they understand that he was going to go and die? Well, not really. I mean, Mary may have. Remember? Uh, anoints his feet, dries it with her hair. Maybe the disciples understood to some degree, but they really didn't get it. And it really didn't matter because Jesus had set his face like flint towards Jerusalem and he was going there no matter what because that was the will of the Lord and he wanted nothing other than to do the will of his Father who sent him. Now, Jesus comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill the law of the prophets. So everything that he said fulfilled what was said about the Messiah in the Old Testament. So everything that he did fulfilled what the, said about the Messiah from the Old Testament. He taught only those things that fulfilled the teachings of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. All the things that would be accomplished through his life and his death and his resurrection, he fulfilled everything about the Messiah. And the people, the experts, who should have been able to see him and say, you know, that's the Messiah, they were wrong. They were wrong. And Jesus, Psalm 118 again talks about the stone the builders rejected. It becomes the capstone. This is the day the Lord has made. We rejoice because the stone has come. The stone upon which everything else is going to be built. So let's look at Matthew 21. Verse 33. This is one of those parables of Jesus. And, and, you know, Jesus often says, he who has ears, let him hear. Because some people got the parables and some people did not get the parable. Uh, you think, well, how could you miss the point? Um, they did not have ears to hear, so they did not understand. Matthew 21, verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So he, he does, if, if you're going to make a vineyard, this is the kind of vineyard you want. Okay, It's protected, it has a tower to watch over it, it has a wine press in it, it is ready to go. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves 
and beat one and killed one and stoned a third. And yet again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine growers? Now, this is a question of Jesus to the Jewish leaders of the day. Look at their answer. And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. And Jesus said to them, didn't you ever read your scriptures? And he quotes, what Psalm 118? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard, this, heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Okay? Here is the parable. Here is the truth. You understand that it's about you. What should be your response? Just like the, when he came in, Lord, save us. Lord, I am lost. What do I have to do to be saved? And they said no. When and when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him as a prophet. So we've got to kill this guy. We have got to get rid of this guy. The experts who should have understood everything that Jesus said, everything he was about, all they want to do now is kill Jesus. Why didn't they like Jesus? Well, they didn't approve of where he came from. He came from Galilee. They didn't like his lack of formal education. They didn't, they didn't jump through all the hoops that they had to jump through. John chapter 7, it mentions this. They didn't like his disregard of the religious rules. Luke chapter 6, they didn't like the people that he hung out with. Matthew chapter 9, mostly they didn't like what he taught because what he taught cut to their hearts. And he wasn't afraid to point out their, their hypocrisy, their reliance upon themselves, their self-righteousness, their, their self-works. They didn't like the fact that he didn't think you could get your own way to heaven by being good and, and dotting your I's and crossing your T's. They didn't like the fact that he didn't teach that you had to earn your way to heaven, that it was God's grace. They didn't like the fact that he taught that certain people belong to him and the Father gave them to him, John chapter 10. So they rejected him. The experts of the day who should have known they rejected him. Well, how do the experts of today, the smart people today, reject the things of Christ? You know, it's always fun to search on the internet weird things like this. So I searched something along the lines of the ways smart people reject Christ. Okay? And of course for every search you get two million results. Um, and I've only picked three of the two million results that I got for this. Now there are so many ways and so many writings from so many people about why they reject Christ and these are considered to be smart people within the world. So let me give you just three things that I found. And, and, 
And I want to tell you what, they are offensive and they come from certain presuppositions that have no basis in reality or fact. But yet they seem to rule the day so often in our society. The first reason why the experts reject Christ. They accept the reality of God, but they reject that any church or any entity other than themselves can be the ruling fact or ruling entity in their own lives or in the lives of society. What this means is that rights and laws are really based upon what I think and are none are given to us by our Heavenly Father. Man is the source. Life's mysteries, life's big problems and big questions, the answers have to be individualized to what I think they are and to how I see the world and the reality that centers upon me. So people become their own authority. They accept their own personal experience above everything else. Feeling, it really comes down to how I feel about something. You know, and you've probably asked that question, well, how do you feel about that? Sometimes it doesn't matter how we feel about it because there is a right and there is a wrong. Now, how do you feel about that right and that wrong? That's a different question. But there becomes this sense that my feelings cannot be denied. They cannot be argued with because they are my feelings, so they are right. The second way that experts have denied Christ, and we've talked about this before, and this, this, was, this is kind of an easy one, but experts say that Christianity is dangerous to society. Christianity is dangerous to society. Now, we know from Scripture that Christianity will divide husband and wife, father and son, because some will follow and some will not. That's not what they're talking about here. Christianity threatens the sinner because it reveals the nature of the human heart. Christianity points to the things where we are lacking and needing the work of our Heavenly Father. Now, what if you just love to do bad things, but, you know, there were no consequences, and no, no repercussions, and you really didn't understand that they were bad? See, when Christianity comes along, there are do's and don'ts because God says this is wrong and this is right. And, and it kind of rains on their parade. So in an, in an effort to not have their, their heart full of guilt of their own actions, Christianity must be determined to be dangerous. Richard Dawkins famously said that religion is a virus. Now others have taken that concept and run with it. And I'm just going to read to you some of the writings of, of some of the people who have said that Christianity is a virus. Listen carefully. Christianity works off the methodology of a virus. It infects other countries through missionary work. It dresses itself as a wolf in sheep's clothing by taking local traditions and putting a Christian meaning on them. Wolf in sheep's clothing, I thought that was evil. I didn't think that was Christianity. Uh, it then infiltrates the societies by offering incentives such as food and water and education in exchange for reading the Bible. Once the local population has been seduced by the favors and has become dependent on the church, and once a large enough section of the population is devoted to the Christian God, the church demands its followers to go on a turn or burn campaign. 
There the entire population is expected to either become Christian or the Christians will either kill them or force them off of their land. Countless native peoples have had their lives and culture fractured because of the wrecking ball of Christianity. If the church is successful like a virus, it will spread to neighboring nations. If it is stopped by defending pagan nations, it will plead the martyr card. This is an attempt to elicit guilt and sympathy from other would-be victims of the Christian menace. I am convinced, as others have pointed out, that Christianity does seek to set up a one-world government under the banner of Christendom. The religion has fought a ruthless and inhuman campaign to destroy as much of ancient tradition as it can, slander as many of the ancient deities as it can, and to disenfranchise as much of the population as it can from their magical roots and birthright of godhood. Christian religion has done little to nothing but stagnate and subjugate humanity. Does that sound familiar? That's to Christianity, I know, but that's, some of the, that's just one of the writings of an expert in today's world about their view of Christianity. I've got one more for you. Experts, because Christianity is dangerous, it's a virus. One other view is experts reject Christ by corrupting his moral teachings and his ethical teachings. Now, this is a quote from somebody who went to seminary, graduated from seminary, and upon his graduation, pitched everything out of the Christian faith. I'd say, see if you can pick out all the errors, but just way too many. Okay? The New Testament specifically promotes substitutionary atonement. Sure it does. You bet it does. It introduced the doctrine of hell. Jesus said that his followers should not plan or save for the future. So IRAs and 401ks are evil. The New Testament doesn't speak against slavery. Instead, it promotes it and orders slaves to obey their masters. It mangles Old Testament prophecy to the point that it is nearly unrecognizable. Jesus curses a fig tree because he's hungry and it has no fruit. Although it was out of season, it promotes the idea that suffering and persecution should be expected as a sign of faithful living. It teaches people to go against their natural instincts to survive and stand up for themselves. The Old Testament promotes and commands genocide. It is degrading to women. It also allows slavery and even instructs people on how severely their slaves can be beaten. It forces women to marry their rapists. It tells the story of a God who simply cannot get anything right despite his best efforts. God hardens Pharaoh's heart so God can keep sending the plagues. It's bloodthirsty and tyrannical, and the God that it portrays is neither moral or good. He's a mob boss threatening and then punishing his subjects for being human and asserting that you had better follow all 613 commandments or else. It's appalling that the Bible was referred to as the good book, and they even let children read it. It's evil, self-contradictory, downright wrong on many accounts, and was the word of Bronze Age barbaric people whose idea of God happened to just go along with everything they already did, believed, or wanted. Experts. Theologically trained experts. As I said, time does not really permit the correction of all those errors. Some of those things are just taken, they are presumed to be fact and run with, and they have no basis in fact, they have no basis in teaching the scripture, on and on and on. The experts can't see the truth. 
There are lots of things about the gospel that the experts don't like. They don't like human guilt. They don't like responsibility for sin. They don't like the fact that I can't get to God on my own, that he comes and extends grace to me and saves me. They don't like the fact that God always accomplishes his purposes even over the objections of mankind, even in the midst of what we think are bad events, God is achieving his purposes. We may fight him, we may argue against him, but he will always win and his will will be accomplished. And what is his will? His will is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. I refer you to Philippians chapter 2. And let me remind you, that it would be better that Christ is exalted in your salvation rather than in your judgment. Let's pray. Lord, how is it that for so many of us you have been gracious and you have opened our eyes and, and we read these experts and we think, where do they come up with this stuff? But in the days of Jesus, the experts had the Messiah right in front of them. There he was. He walked in the midst of them. He came into Jerusalem in the way that was prophesied, humble and riding on a foal. Yet they did not see it. Yet they closed their ears to his word. How many people, Lord, in our world have have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and just closed their ears to it? How many people have we just been able to share it with? To live it out in front of, and they just think Christianity is for crazy people. Yet our hearts have been changed. Yet our eyes have been opened, and our ears hear the gospel message. And we know the greatness of Jesus Christ. We know the sacrifice that he gave. And we know that this salvation that is needed by each individual can only be achieved by receiving Christ as their Lord and Savior, by professing, by professing his name as Lord and Savior, believing in our hearts, professing with our mouths, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, come upon us today that our eyes would be open and our hearts softened that Christ would not just enter Jerusalem on this day, he would enter into our lives and change us forever. We ask in his precious name, amen.